Every day, scientists are learning more and more about how human brains work and how many of us don't fit into the old-fashioned understanding of how brains should work. But a lot of ideas about parenting and familial relationships still need to catch up to the reality of human variation. Neurological differences are natural, profoundly valuable parts of being in a community together and in being part of a family. Whoever you are, wherever you are in your journey, I am here to explore with you. We are all in this together. Welcome to Neurodiverging. Welcome back to Neurodiverging. Thank you so much for tuning in with me again today. If you're new here, I'm Danielle, and I'm the autistic parent of one autistic child and one ADHD child, the partner of an ADHD man, and September update, virtual school is exhausting. Neurodiverging is dedicated to helping neurodiverse folks find the resources they need to live better lives as individuals and to further disability awareness and social justice efforts to improve all of our lives as part of the larger world community. You can learn more by checking out my website at neurodiverging.com. Please don't forget to hit the subscribe button to make sure you are notified when there's a new episode. And did you know that I'm on Patreon? Podcast hosting costs money, and I do this all by myself, so come be a patron on Patreon and support this podcast. I have so many fun things planned. Speaking of support, I want to thank iAlly for supporting this episode today and allowing me to keep making this podcast for you. iAlly is an app and website for millennial caregivers, and I'll be talking more about them in a little bit. Today, I want to discuss a common concern for neurodiverse women, which is that almost all of us have more than just one health difference going on. We have a lot of other co-occurring conditions that can be present along with these neurotypes. This is especially concerning for women with autism, ADHD, and other neurodivergences for two reasons. First, we know that autistic women and ADHD women are at higher risk of a variety of health issues than autistic and ADHD men are, though we don't yet understand why. One study published just this month, September 2020, indicated that autistic individuals are on average one and a half to 4.3 times as likely to have a wide variety of health conditions, including low blood pressure, arrhythmias, asthma, and prediabetes, and that autistic women are 4.3 times more likely to have prediabetes than non-autistic women. The influence of smoking, alcohol use, and BMI do not account for the heightened risk of heart, lung, and diabetic conditions seen among autistic adults. Regarding ADHD, we know that as many as 80% of adults with ADHD have at least one coexisting psychiatric disorder, including mood and anxiety disorders, substance use disorders, and personality disorders. And from a study from 2019, quote, women and girls diagnosed with ADHD are more likely than their male counterparts to also have one or more comorbid conditions, including autism spectrum disorder, schizophrenia, and suicidal behavior, end quote. So women have a higher risk of having more than one health condition associated with their autism or ADHD and higher risk that the condition will be more detrimental to their overall health. It seems likely that this higher risk might apply to other neurodivergent brains as well. 
And the second reason, number two, that I especially want to talk about the difficulty of having more than one health issue for women who are not neurotypical is that women are more likely to be family caretakers. That means that women are more often trying to manage their own conditions and health concerns, as well as those of their children, their parents, and other older relatives. Here's some information from the National Alliance for Caregiving. And by the way, links to all of my sources are in the show notes at neurodiverging.com. One in five people in the United States in 2020 is providing unpaid care to someone in their family. That's 53 million people working unpaid as family caregivers just in the U.S. One in four of those people are actually caring for more than one person. So say your mother and your child. And the majority of caregivers are women, somewhere between 53 and 68 percent, according to the Family Caregiver Alliance. Women caregivers also spend more hours of the week providing care than men caregivers do and are more likely to assist with more difficult caregiving tasks, such as toileting and bathing. Men are more likely to assist with finances or arrange for other care. So with our health care and support needs being complex, neurodiverse people can have trouble getting those needs met. Autistic and ADHD women can have even more trouble getting medical care, mental health support, and help from friends and community. When we don't get the health care or community support we need, we can end up stressed, depressed, anxious, and in worse physical or mental health. The situation can cause a downward spiral, and it's scary for a lot of us, which is why I want to talk about it. I have my own experiences, but my health concerns are luckily relatively minor, so I didn't want this to be about me. I wanted to get some perspectives from neurodivergent women who interact with the healthcare system more often than I've had to. In order to make sure that this episode reflected a variety of perspectives, I put a call out to my followers on social media to ask for their experiences getting support for their medical and mental health concerns from the medical systems and from their social circles. I also asked if anyone had any stories about being a neurodivergent caretaker for someone else and how that affected them. I can't thank everyone who responded enough. Thank you so much. So many autistic folks offered up their stories and ideas in the hopes of helping other neurodiverse people listening to this podcast, and I was so moved by the generosity of our community. I want to especially thank Meg, Dominica, and Lauren Melissa for generously offering their experiences and expertise for today's podcast. I asked these women a series of questions over email about their lives, their diagnoses, and their experiences with medical and mental health systems. Their full interviews and the interview questions themselves are up on neurodiverging.com. Some of their interviews have been edited for time, so please do go read the full versions. Their social media links are in the show notes, and they have amazing Instagram accounts, so please go check them out and give them a follow. First, let's hear from Dominica. Dominica is on Instagram under the handle the underscore ADHD underscore dinosaur, D-Y-N-O-S-A-U-R. Dominica is from Calgary, Alberta. She's an ADHD advocate and parent of two boys. A brief content warning, Dominica's interview contains mention of the death of a family member in a traumatic circumstance. Please skip forward or give this episode a pass as you need to. Your mental health matters. My name is Dominica, but I've gone by the nickname of Dino, D-Y-N-O, since I was 16. I honestly do a bit of everything. I volunteered at my local zoo as a keeper's assistant. I paint massive murals and repaint little knickknacks and volunteer as a scout leader for my area. I've been disabled since I was 14 and off work since I was 19. So now I fill my time learning new skills, helping in my communities. My most recent endeavor is raising awareness of ADHD. 
I live in Calgary, Alberta under the beautiful Rockies that have been my safe haven for years. I was diagnosed at 25 with ADHD and ODD. However, it was a long journey leading to the diagnosis. Prior to that, I was diagnosed with OCD, anorexia, and PTSD. It was one of those things teachers would mention, but my parents sort of brushed off, always lurking. On top of my little alphabet soup, I have a spinal injury and two steel pins in my hip. My ADHD diagnosis used to just sneak in and cause trouble, like a little gremlin in the vents. However, after the diagnosis and when I really began looking at it and understanding it, it's become more of a work of art in progress. Every day I'm learning new ways to view my brain, new ways to love my ADHD as it is. I found once I had the knowledge, I had the power to start controlling it, using it to my advantage. The more I thought about it, the more I realized how negatively ADHD is treated in kids and began seeing the same behaviors that messed me up in common places like the schoolroom and began really wanting to change the narrative before my kids, my nieces, and nephews all get the short end of the stick and end up struggling way worse than they ever should have to. So my journey with doctors started when I was 14. We had been involved in a motor vehicle collision. I won't call it an accident as he was drinking, making it his fault, not a random unavoidable occurrence that resulted in my younger brother's passing and my physical injuries. Even at that time, I felt so unheard, so out of control, very me against the world vibes. They would often talk at me rather than to me or to my parents like I wasn't even there, which I now get would aggravate my ODD. Even more so, my PTSD and nerve damage would still go undiagnosed for nine more years. My needs didn't get met until I was 18 and pregnant with my first son. A teacher at an outreach school suggested I go to this youth community center called the Alex, a 15 minute walk from the school, and that was the most important moment for my mental health. This place not only understood how I processed my world, they knew how to work with it. They became my family doctor, they had the most wonderful counselor I had ever met, and I'd already gone through eight others. I trusted them, I still trust them. It really taught me the importance of validation and showing compassion. For me, what made the biggest difference was finding a medical professional that I could trust and knew they were on my side. I feel like the medical field needs to be a little more aware of mental health and how that affects the way we react. I'm not saying it's an excuse for some behaviors, but an explanation. We should always be working on growing as people and understanding ourselves deeper. That's not a neurodivergent thing though, that's an every human thing, striving for growth. I needed these adults that I was looking to for guidance to help me through my loss and help me with my huge emotions. However, I do understand they couldn't, they did the best they could with what they had, and I understand that. That's why we need to give them better information, more understanding. My teen years were a whirlwind of drama and reckless behaviors, anything to cope with this racing mind and chaotic energy that overwhelmed me constantly. My friends, though, they got it and they didn't judge me or anything. I never had to come out as pansexual or anything, they just kinda knew. My grades flopped, though, and my home life was pretty explosive. My mom and I grieved very differently and weren't seeing eye to eye. I get now she wasn't having her mental health needs met either, and just honestly couldn't parent an untreated grieving teen without any support, so I definitely don't blame her for any of it, even not getting me diagnosed sooner. Nowadays though, we're super close. We text each other daily and see each other at least once a week. It took time and it took me changing first for my mom to feel safe to accept change and get support. I was always the little more out there one and I made the choice to change for my kids and my own sanity first. She'd never let me go alone so she came along for the journey and we've both grown. I also found that many of my friends are still as open and supportive now that I feel honestly supported. 
I feel heard and in control of myself. I really want to help others find those circles that understand them, because honestly, they're out there. You're not alone. Sometimes with family, it takes healing yourself first to encourage them to heal too. Because I started this process, my mom did. Then because she did, my dad began to. Compassion is contagious. I have two sons, both with ADHD and anxiety. My oldest is 10 and my youngest one is almost eight. Going through the medical system to get my 10 year old diagnosed was the worst experience I had ever had. I was a young mom, had him at 19 and not diagnosed yet, so they treated me like I was less than all the damn time. I mean, I'm sure my ODD didn't help with that either. I knew something was going on. I knew something wasn't quite right and he needed something more than he was getting. Thank goodness I listened to the mama instincts, even after every teacher and doctor basically gave me an, eh, boys will be boys. I'm sorry, but my five-year-old just had a three-hour scream fest and smashed a door in the middle. I don't really think that qualifies for boys will be boys. And I had days I really wasn't a good mom because I couldn't manage my own mental health and his at the same time. And my spouse was dealing with undiagnosed bipolar disorder at the time, so the stress was high. I still live with crazy guilt over this, even though I've come a long way and my boys regularly tell me I am the best mom ever. I'm their safe person because they know they can tell me anything and I'll have their back. After getting him diagnosed, things got so much worse before they got better. I again reached out to Alex and asked for help. We got in contact with another local youth group that had a program to help us. We had a specialized therapist come out once a week and teach us strategies to help him. Many we still use and some we haven't needed for a few years. This lady was amazing. She understood me. She knew I was the burnt out caregiver of two special needs boys and my hubby who was having an episode, his last one in the last four years since diagnosis. She knew I needed compassion. She helped me feel confident and like I was doing an okay job. Near the end of the 18-month program with her, I stood up to our principal with her support and got my son into a specialized class. We've been working on repairing his self-esteem and providing him the best chances for success. My eight-year-old was only recently diagnosed after a great struggle to get his teacher to understand that the fact that he isn't outwardly hyper doesn't mean anything, as here the teachers need to fill out a SNAP form for them to get diagnosed. He also was very sick for a very long time while we did some testing and eventually found out he has celiac disease. My poor baby really struggled with that. Our journey with him is only just starting. I would love to go back and tell myself that it's ADHD and PTSD sooner. Tell her she's not crazy or too much of anything. I want people to maybe understand that your ADHD isn't a weakness. It's a strength, but you just got to refine it a bit. Own that stuff. You don't owe anyone an apology for existing. Self-awareness is a skill that's so invaluable, but it takes a lot of practice, like daily practice, just like you would any other skill. Start small, pick one or two things to work on at a time, and celebrate those little wins. Thank you so much, Dominica, for offering this interview. I think your story is so moving. You've overcome so much, and it sounds like you and your family are persevering with a lot of hard work. And doesn't it help so much to find mental health and medical support that actually listen to you? And reading the interview, I'm pretty sure you are the best mom ever. So fantastic work. It is not easy. Listeners, please remember you can find Dominica on Instagram at the underscore ADHD underscore dinosaur, D-Y-N-O-S-A-U-R. Check out neurodiverging.com for her full interview too. Next, I'd like you to hear from Lauren Melissa, autistic advocate and creator of Audie Tips. She's on Instagram at AudieNL, A-U-T-I-E-N-E-L-L-E. Lauren has kindly pre-recorded her interview for us.
My name is Lauren Melissa. I am a librarian and I live in New York City. My current diagnoses are autism spectrum disorder, as well as hypermobility syndrome, chronic hypoglycemia, and just in general, chronic pain. They affect my life every single day. Autism affects me socially, emotionally, but it also impacts my work beyond the social emotional difficulties and the sensory difficulties. It helps me in terms of my way of thinking, in terms of getting work done, and I consider autism to be a gift as well as a challenge, especially in our neurotypical society. Hypermobility syndrome, on the other hand, while I can do cool stretchy tricks, it causes me to suffer from chronic pain in addition to the sensory pain I have with autism. I am constantly micro-tearing my joints. I have incurable chronic tendinitis in both of my shoulders and I experience a lot of tension headaches and cluster headaches and occasionally migraines as a result of these pains. Hypoglycemia causes me to have chronically abnormally low blood sugar. And so while some autistics say they forget to eat because they hyperfocus, I don't have the ability to really do that because I can pass out, get irritable, get dizzy, and it really affects my days. I have to keep a constant, I guess, pulse on my hypoglycemia throughout every single day. With doctors, I've had many struggles. I've been misdiagnosed throughout my life. I was diagnosed with migraines. I was diagnosed with um, fibromyalgia, misdiagnosed with that. And I was put on medications such as tramadol for pain and a fibromyalgia medication called Civella, which does certain things to the neurotransmitters and the brain. As a result, I went through a lot of anxiety and depression before they realized that the medicine was causing that and I was taken off. I am no longer diagnosed with fibromyalgia because it is a diagnosis of exclusion and my autism diagnosis replaced it. With mental health caregivers, I would say that the majority of them were really clueless as to what was going on in my life and in my struggles, either because I wasn't diagnosed with autism yet and so I couldn't tell them that I was autistic or even after my formal diagnosis they had very limited experience with autism and couldn't really see my struggles beyond you know the fact that I could make eye contact and smile at the right times quote-unquote right times so that has been a struggle to find mental health caregiving that worked for me I also have hypermobility syndrome and that has been a difficulty because I believe that it is more than that and so I am seeking a potential Ehlers-Danlos diagnosis. That's been a battle though because I have to see my primary caregiver and then a rheumatologist and then get referred to a geneticist and with healthcare and making sure everything is covered as well as moving states. Here and there, I've had a lot of struggle getting to that final step in the process. So I hope to eventually get 
um, and evaluated for Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, but it has not happened yet. With regard to social support, I would say that my friends have been the most supportive people, especially those that I have told that I'm autistic from the get-go when I met them. With family, they tend to they tended to just tell me, you are who you are, I'm not going to change the way I am around you, I'm going to treat you exactly the same. And by saying that, I think they believed they were doing me a favor. So it took a while to explain to them that I actually did need them to learn about and become aware about the ways that autism impacts me every day. It's been a slow journey, but there has been progress there. My friends, on the other hand, I can say things like, I need a break because I'm feeling socially overloaded or I can't go out. I feel like my routine's been disrupted and they would understand and be understanding. I wish it would just be easier that people wouldn't need so many explanations. In an ideal world, we would just listen, learn, and adapt to people's needs as they came, but one step at a time before we have um, true neurodivergent acceptance. My mother was diagnosed with many mental health disorders, most of which I don't feel like disclosing in this interview, but she had some, she has some she had, sorry, she's passed away, but she had some complex um, mental health co-occurring conditions, and it was very hard to manage my autism and also care for her in the last years of her life. Um, the biggest challenges were needing were me needing to mask and ignore social and sensory overload in order to take care of her. And that was a very hard time. A takeaway that I would like others to have from my story is that autistic people, we do have challenges, we do have struggles, but we also have so much to offer. and We are inherently valuable in a society that really needs out-of-the-box thinking and innovation in order to overcome the complex issues that we face. Not autistics face, but society as a whole face. And I would say always look at the little improvements, the little progress. You know, it can feel like we're just constantly going uphill, constantly going uphill, but each day we can climb a little higher. Maybe we need to take a break and sit at a part of the mountain for a few days. But even that is still progress because so many of us, we never learned how to take care of ourselves. We were always told to keep masking, keep camouflaging, keep trying to be neurotypical. The moment that we recognize that we are autistic and we don't need to try to be neurotypical, we just need to try to learn who we are and how to exist in our world, that's the moment where we can really recognize inclusion in our own lives, self-inclusion, and we can move forward. We can make our own happiness, we can make our own joy, and we can find those who love and support us. Thank you so much, Lauren Melissa, for sharing your story with us today and for your powerful activism on behalf of all of us autistics. Friends, please remember to find her on Instagram at AutiNL, A-U-T-I-E-N-E-L-L-E. So we've heard from two very different women in very different lives who've experienced a lot of difficulty accessing correct diagnoses for themselves and their family members and also trouble finding good medical and mental health care in the first place. 
We'll hear from one more contributor, Meg, about her journeys with sensory processing disorder and avoidant restrictive food intake disorder after a very quick break from our generous sponsor, iAlly. Today's episode is generously sponsored by iAlly. iAlly is a website and app created to be the family caregiver's companion. It was created by a young woman who became her father's full-time caregiver rather suddenly and recognized the lack of support and resources available to caregivers in our millennial generation. The iAlly app provides personalized access to mental health providers, financial coaching, and education, legal counsel, and a digitized matching service for clinical trials. It also has a cool feature the iAlly Checkup, which ensures that you are taking advantage of all the benefits you may be eligible for, as well as a personal caregiving coach. What I really loved about iAlly when I first found out about it is that the app offers a way for those of us taking care of kids or parents with significant needs, a centralized space for all of our medical documents, medical histories, medications, important notes, which makes it easier to keep track of everything. I struggle with executive function, I've talked about that before, and my kids have multiple medical conditions to manage. I know a lot of you are in the same boat. The app is a huge help. Additionally, as the family caregiver, all of your own medical information, documents, and medications are in there too, and the app encourages you to be thinking about how to take care of yourself and make sure you're getting to your appointments too while you're supporting your family member. You have access to all of this coaching, as well as medical and mental health resources right inside the app, so it's all easy to find when you need it. There's also mutual aid opportunities to help right inside the app. So if you need help picking up groceries or getting rides to the doctor, you can ask for help from a volunteer. Or you can volunteer yourself if you want to be available to help others in your community. You can customize your own plan so you can choose the resources you need or want. It's all personalized and it's free to join. You can learn more about iAlly at app.i-ally.com or please click the link below in the show notes. Thank you so much to iAlly for sponsoring Neurodiverging today. Thank you, iAlly. Now I'd like you to hear from Meg, who is also from New York. Meg runs the Instagram account, ARFID Awareness, which is dedicated to raising awareness about avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, ARFID, and sensory processing disorder, SPD. Another brief content warning, Meg's interview contains discussion of medical trauma as well as discussion of her difficulty with avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, which is an eating disorder. Please skip forward or give this a pass if you need to. Your mental health matters. Meg sent in her answers as an email and has given me permission to share her answers with you. Her answers have been slightly edited for clarity. My name is Meg. I'm from New York, born and raised. I'm an identical mirror twin. I just graduated with my master's in exercise and sports psychology, and I'm hoping to further my education in either occupational therapy or clinical psychology. I love trail running, traveling, and playing the flute and guitar. I have sensory processing disorder and avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, ARFID. On the outside looking in, most would have no idea I struggle with these things, but they affect me socially, emotionally, physically, and occupationally. Everyday things can be incredibly difficult, especially if I don't know how certain environments are. Socializing can be hard when there is food involved, and everyday sensory things that most don't have an issue with can be beyond difficult to manage, as I respond differently to sensory stimuli. Sometimes I feel like I have to walk on eggshells. It's exhausting. 
When I was first diagnosed with an eating disorder, ARFID wasn't in the DSM and I didn't meet the criteria for anorexia, but they diagnosed me with anorexia anyway. So I was treated for anorexia for over 10 years before anyone even entertained an ARFID diagnosis. To have an eating disorder where body image isn't a concern is often overlooked. I was in multiple treatment centers and they were traumatizing in a lot of ways because the underlying issues weren't being addressed. In some ways, I developed an even more intense fear of food, which only ended me back up in treatment. It was a terrible cycle. I was labeled as chronic anorexia, non-compliant, and treatment resistant. Those labels harmed me for years. In addition, treatment centers are not versed in sensory issues. I remember uncontrollably gagging and throwing up textures of foods, having sensory shutdowns and meltdowns because of my external sensory environment being so overloaded. And instead of someone exploring more of what was going on, I would just be put on one-to-one -one observation and still had to eat those foods and was told I needed to ride out the anxiety. What people failed to recognize was that the root of my anxiety was a sensory issue, not typical anxiety. It was an inability to process and regulate sensory stimuli. Still now, treatment centers are still not well-versed in ARFID, even though it's been in the DSM for over seven years now. As far as my SPD, I've had that for as long as I can remember. But since I did well in school, growing up, no one questioned it, and it was written off as me being sensitive. Once I got to college, I was told it was just anxiety and panic disorder, but I knew it was something else. I would often try to advocate for myself, but doctors and mental health providers wouldn't listen, or they told me that those issues only happen in children and you outgrow it, which is false. I eventually gave up for a while on trying to advocate for myself. It was exhausting. I figured that I'd just spend my life trying to get by the best I could. And since SPD is not currently recognized by the DSM as a standalone disorder, there's a lot of controversy around it. So finding a doctor who was willing to listen to me and help me get services to address it was challenging. It wasn't until I was in the end of my undergraduate program where it started to impact my daily life. I had to leave school and I couldn't work. It took years to have professionals hear me out and actually look into a proper diagnosis. It has been beyond difficult. But once I reached out to occupational therapists and found eating disorder professionals who were willing to listen to me, I actually started to make progress and things just made so much sense, especially since ARFID and SPD tend to go hand in hand. I think if there were more education around ARFID in the eating disorder community, it would have been easier to have my needs met. If treatment centers employed occupational therapists back then to be part of one's treatment team, I believe that my ARFID and SPD diagnosis would have been picked up on much faster, and my needs could have been more appropriately met. I have a few family and friends who have been great about support, but on the whole, it's been hard. ARFID and SPD are so misunderstood and often underrepresented. People think they're just childhood issues and that I'm just being picky and or too sensitive. It can feel so hard to explain to them. I wish there was less stigma on it. I wish it were easier for them to understand why I react certain ways and that it isn't something I can necessarily control, but a genuine lack in ability to respond appropriately to sensory stimuli. I wish they would understand that I'm just not wired like them. I also wish they wouldn't take my reactions personally. What would be easier is if they just asked questions instead of making assumptions about things regarding my ARFID and SPD. Misdiagnosis is harmful. Professionals need to better educate themselves instead of making assumptions based off their own beliefs or what they think they may know. Misdiagnosis made my issues so much worse. 
If I were correctly diagnosed from the start, I think I could have prevented a lot of secondary mental and physical issues from occurring. I would have been able to get services so my quality of life was enhanced rather than diminished. If you believe you are not being treated fairly or correctly, seek a second opinion. You know yourself better than anyone else. Never stop advocating for yourself. There are people and healthcare providers who will listen. Don't stop until you find them. It is possible to live a fulfilling life even in the face of ARFID and SPD. Since finding healthcare providers who understand my struggles, I've been able to get the support I need to make more progress. While these conditions impact me and my always, I can learn to manage them in a way that doesn't interfere with my everyday life and can slowly start to enhance my quality of life in a way that works for me. Thank you so much, Meg, for sharing your struggles with us and for your inspiring words. It is so hard and exhausting to advocate for yourself constantly, but I think you're right. There are good medical providers out there. We can all keep doing the work to encourage more education for health professionals on all forms of neurodiversity, common co-occurring issues, in the hopes that it will be easier for all of us in the future. So to finish up, I just want to thank again Dominica, Lauren, Melissa, and Meg for sharing so much, so candidly for all of us today. I think their stories speak for themselves, but there are a couple of common themes I just want to point out to round us up. First, most of us neurodivergent women rely on friends and family to offer us support and care over healthcare professionals and mental health systems. It's hard to feel heard about your personal experiences. It's hard to get correct diagnoses and treatment, and it's hard to access useful medical and mental health interventions, even if you know exactly what you need. Second, the lack of support does seriously affect the overall health and wellness of neurodivergent women. Bad interactions with the medical systems, like Dominica having to wait nine years for a PTSD diagnosis and treatment for her nerve damage, Meg's anorexia quote-unquote treatment, and Laura Melissa's adverse drug reactions, they all, those kinds of things, create long-term harm for us. Third, simultaneously, we have understood that good medical and mental health interventions can be life-changing. Dominica said that her experience with a good mental health practitioner, quote, taught me the importance of validation and showing compassion, end quote, and turned around her family's life. All three women expressed that finally finding correct diagnoses led to helpful treatment or modified their expectations in such a way that they could view themselves and their neurodivergences as inherently valuable and necessary to the world. That is really important. I want to thank you all for joining me on Neurodiverging today. Please check out neurodiverging.com for the full transcript, the full interviews, and everybody's social links on Instagram. Thank you again to Dominica, Meg, and Lauren, Melissa for their experience and their expertise in this interview. And remember, we are all in this together. <laughs>